Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 12 Rhythms of Pleasure The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue this series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Rhythms of Pleasure is the 12th episode that arises from a conversation with choreographer and performer Julia Barré-Laperriere. The title of this podcast brings together comments from two conversations with Julia. The one we had for this episode and a previous conversation where we also mixed many questions at the same time. Thinking about the rhythms of speech and voice, I feel that conversations open polyrhythms in language. It is not only the speed or the sound of the voice that changes, but also the meaning, the direction or the intensity of what is being said. I met Julia Barré-Laperriere thanks to Anja Novak. We had met before, but it was only a short time ago that we had a more intimate conversation. We had both attended a dance class where everybody danced a lot, except me, who just watched the others move as I was unable to follow the steps. After that class, Julia and I started talking and sharing impressions, connecting one train of thoughts with another. I don't remember if it was then that we already commented on how strange it is to write biographies in the third person. By using given structures, we seem to be talking about people who don't have much to do with us. But I do remember that we talked about music, pleasure, body and desire. I shared with Julia theories that I read many years ago and that I remember in a lingering and blurred way at the same time. They defined electronic dance music as a kind of continuous orgasm with no beginning and no end, closer to the female logics of pleasure. Rock music, by contrast, was more like a male ejaculation with short, hurried songs. Immediately and enthusiastically, Julia would tell me about her project Falla, where she moves and is moved by a dildo in collaboration with the musician and guitarist Pia Achternkamp. One of the many motives behind it was to consider the guitar as an icon of masculinity, as a sort of sonorous phallus. The way in which gender takes over bodies, pleasures and music are something very present in Falla. Here Julia expresses and moves an alternative female sexuality, freeing it from so many inherited complexes. When I started to research Julia's work a little more, I read her short biography with curiosity and excitement. Not only is it written in the first person, but it dares to speak from desire in a welcoming language. Anecdotes from her childhood appear, and feelings find their way into her decision-making. The way in which the rational cannot be separated from feelings reminded me of the notion of visceral thinking by Sigmar Zacharias, an artist with whom both Julia and I worked. 
When thinking about other elements of Julia's research, archetypes, I feel that standard biographies of artists and curators reproduce ideal models with little life. They are closer to Disney princes than to hesitant flesh and blood people. This connection brings me to another of her projects, L'Apologie du Prince Charmant, in collaboration with Sébastien Provencher. They both stretch and shrink the gender constructions of Disney fairy tales. As Julia herself says, this project, full of humor and absurdity, served both to finally experience the promised and standard romanticism. For just as there is pleasure in contradicting norms, there is also pleasure in playing with or even participating in conventions. This conversation with Julia Barry-Laperriere took screen at the end of October. This time she was in Cologne and I was in Berlin, a city from where we both moved to other places for work and pleasure. Julia, who also speaks Spanish, would mention her experiences in other cultural contexts where bodies touch more and are closer. When talking about her archetype of the dangerous woman, I ask her the same question that others have asked her. For whom or for what can a woman be dangerous? Julia, who now expands this archetype beyond women, understands this dimension in the plural. Being dangerous as a form of resistance happens when people come together and ally themselves for a common cause. Often this happens unconsciously or without having to know each other personally. When Julia explains her personal and social relationship with femininity, her way of being a boy growing up, reminds me of many other experiences I came across, including a bit of my own. I also feel part of her internal debate about gender pronouns, which simultaneously widen and tighten. And I wonder if the rhythms of pleasure can be part of identities, making them strategic and non-essential for us to move in different ways. I used to be very direct in emails and then I got told I was rude. But I'm just answering the question you asked me. Everyone gets so many emails. Let's just keep it short. But actually in the last day, I feel you and I have taken a very poetic direction with our emails. And I noticed myself also in other work emails sending warm fall greetings or swirling leaves. And then I was like, is this really okay to write this to this director person? And I was like, why not? They also deserve a nice day. Yesterday I was writing having again to send my biography to a place. Actually for a show I will do in February 2024, which I found absolutely crazy. And I was thinking about the fact that as artists, sometimes it feels like our biographies don't really belong to us. But maybe I will come back to that later because first I want to answer your question. So it all came from a class we did in Master Exerce with Anne Botz and Anne Kierzero, and it was a sort of one week on production, how to do production work. And usually in these classes, you learn how to do an Excel sheet and you learn like which programmers you should write to and this kind of stuff. But this class was very special because instead of doing that, we collectively as a class 
plunged into our past and into our biographies and tried to understand since our childhood how we modulated our relationship to money, work, identity, and all these kind of things. And you realize, ah, wow, I have troubles approaching a programmer today because when I was a kid, I was shy to do this, 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 that. We really went quite deeply into these topics. And what we were trying to do through this week is to see, as an artist, can your approach to production be like related to the work or to the way you want to work, to the content of the work and to the ethics of the work also. After this week, we did this kind of dossier for a piece. And my piece was Swivel Open, which is a piece in which I work with a really big metal structure and suspension. And uh, some people say it has a little bit to do with contemporary circus. After viewing my dossier, the first comment or one of the first comments was that my biography was very impersonal. And it was really like this. She went to this school. She went that. She uh, showed there, there, there. And then I thought, okay, so... People read hundreds of dossiers. How can I make mine? It's not that it should stick out, but you should get an idea of who I am. And something that is important to me in my work is humor. And for this particular piece, there was the idea of a circus or the working with this big metallic structure, right? So I thought, uh, how can I bring in those two elements in my biography? And it was very funny because, as I say in there, my kind of adoptive grandma never really understood what contemporary dance was. So she would always tell her friends that I worked for Cirque du Soleil. And so somehow I thought that should make it in there. <laughs> and so I wrote this biography as an exercise and as a tryout. And I really went as formal as the first biography was. I went completely on the other side. I could test it. And then everybody loved it. Actually, on my computer, there is maybe like 20 biographies. Whenever I need to write one, I can never find exactly the one that I need, so I always rewrite one. I think this opened for me like the possibility to be much more personal, but also sometimes when people ask you like a hundred words or something like that, it's hard to really give space to this. I think it's a very tricky place that you have to find a certain degree of self-assertiveness, but then also still be humble, you know? Because so many people work around the same topics and if you say, hey, I tackle this, it's quite like bam bam. I was in a working group with one of these labs in Camp Nagel with Olympia Bukakis and Beatrix Zigla. We were a bunch of artists meeting together and talking about how it is to be a queer artist in relationship to subcultural spaces and institutions. Through this, I found out I'm not a young queer artist, but let's say I only came out when I was like 25 or so. In these terms, I feel young in my queer identity, let's say. It's only been about six years. You also took this quote from Anne-Marie, Adrian Mary Brown, sorry, that says like, yes, I am a woman with some boy in me, but I haven't found the words for that yet. I added yet. And I felt there is so much pressure from the institution to be assertive with who you are. And you don't only have to sell your work, but you have to sell who you are. So you also have to sell your biography and be very clear about that. But as a queer person, and probably it happens to other people as well, but I feel like my identity is something I'm still finding out and is still not completely built and is a place of insecurity also because it, it is a place I can be attacked from. Sometimes I struggle with this sort of um, tension between like present this queer figure artist and then yeah, giving this biography for in two years. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe I'll have another name in two years. Who know? I think it's interesting that you bring Zygmar's visceral thinking because 
It was a bit Hollywood, no? On one side, I had the business studies in three languages with a full grant. And I had told my parents, I'll just apply to dance school in case I don't get into business school, which I would get into. We all knew that. But it was the reasonable choice versus the choice of passion. When I got the letter from the business school, I was happy. I was very happy. I was proud. But when I got the letter from the dance school, it was this physical reaction of embodied joy, you know, and I just had to listen to it. And then I told my dad and he was like, no. But what was very funny is that years later, when I did my graduation piece, he was very cute and he came and he told me, yes, you would have been very bored with the accountants. I don't know if I can say that, but if I get tired of being a poor artist, then I will go to the dark side and become an investment banker or something. <laughs> In that week, that we were dealing with production matters and that we went to see into our childhood what are stories that had somehow built the way we deal with these matters. One story I shared with the group that everybody found very funny was the broccoli story. So from then on, we called it the broccoli technique and it was a shared technique. And it was that when I was about seven or eight, I was at the table and my dad wanted me to finish my vegetables. And I think it was broccoli, but I'm not sure. And I didn't want to eat the broccoli. And he was like, you're going to sit at the table until you eat the broccoli. I was like, fine, I'm not eating the broccoli. And I sat at the table, I think, three or four hours before my dad finally gave up. But from that moment on, I knew that if you just persevere enough, you can win, you know? And of course, you can't always apply this technique because you're going to burn yourself out. But I do find in the arts world that if you persevere enough you can you know you can make it in a way you get inspiration in life and in people and then you justify it with some book for your application i mean this is how it is i don't know i put pleasure activism in all my applications and audrey lord and of course like they're writings gave a form to my thinking but what brought pleasure and eroticism in my life is people is not these books there's three things maybe so in the book there is something she says that your nose make the way for your yeses and she talks about this orgasmic yes what it, would it be to really only do things that you can enthusiastically say yes to and not things that you're like, mm, okay. So I think this is a life principle that would be amazing to be able to follow. Of course, it's not always possible. This winter I was in a really low place and I was dealing with a lot of resentment and I was looking at power structures in the art world and I was like, what the fuck? It's like three guys with the same black shirt curating all of art in... Anyway, I will not go there, but... And then I was like, okay, I want to... I'm gonna love them. I'm gonna apply love and I'm just gonna try to really move from a place of desire and want and world building and connection and not from a place of resentment and some of my accounts got hacked and I was like this is the time to change my password and I know it seems really small but a password is something you type every day I changed my password for like maybe I shouldn't say this in the podcast but I will change it again I was like fuck yes 2022 was like my new affirmation and it really worked from then on things came I will skip to pleasure again because I think it's more interesting <laughs> and I think it's also the practice of just going there 
I had to think of the, the pictures we shared about this laying in the leaves, no? So the other thing about pleasure is that it's just this idea of experiencing this idea around eroticism that I want to detach from sexuality and just, but that can englobe it, of course, because more sex and less shame is always good. But to just experience our senses to the fullest we can in everyday situations. And I think these small changes, these small pleasures, the enjoyment of the fall sun on your face or the giving into the leaves and like doing a snow angel in the leaves or this kind of things just change the way you experience life. And this is also pleasures I'm interested in. This is also something I was interested in, naivety as a survival strategy in the art world. People always think I'm young and naive, or now it's a bit better because I look a little bit older. <laughs> um, there is this idea of, no, take the things people put onto you and turn them into strengths. And I was doing dance web last summer and I was going to dance web after just graduating from a master's and basically it was way too much and I was, I will go in and I will just try to love all the shitty shows I'm gonna see. And I'm just gonna like maintain a certain level of wishful ignorance and give people good intentions and be a little bit naive. And of course you have to doze, no? Because it's important to keep your critical gaze. But I think or else with the way the arts world works, which is basically a market, you just become so depressed. You lose the sense of why you do what you do. I have to remind myself of the little girl that wanted to work to Cirque du Soleil, you know? Or I have... To remind myself that the artist in front also had like a spark that wanted to touch people and maybe we don't do it in the same way and maybe the politics around it make me want to puke but I have to hold on to this naivety sometimes. For a very long time, I wrote in my bio that I was working around, around <laughs> stereotypes. And then I think someone rewrote my bio. We were talking about your bio is not yours. And then wrote archetypes. And then I kind of went with it. I think initially not really knowing what was the difference uh, between both. And also thinking that well, stereotypes feed a lot actually from archetypes. And then recently I started working with Anne-Marie Hess and we were looking into archetypes of women and we were looking really into the definitions of what are the archetypes and they're sort of like these figures. I mean, some could say it comes from Jung psychology, but they're like these figures in a society that we have. And then if I look through my work, I could see, yeah, I've worked a bit with this religious Virgin Mary figure and then... With women, there's kind of four that are the main. There is like the young women, the young, naive, sexual women, let's say. Then there is the mother or the carer. Then there's like the old crown. And then there is the wild woman. It's kind of cool, actually, because they follow the cycle of the moon and they follow also your menstrual cycle. So before your period, you are the wild woman. <laughs> because I was starting to develop this figure of the dangerous woman and I was asking myself what it should be. And I think... It definitely shouldn't be a stereotype, but I think it could be great to create this figure that could propose itself as an archetype to adopt in a way or to look up to a new Virgin Mary. No, <laughs> maybe that's very ambitious, but... It was the start of polyamory, you know? Recomposed family. It's so funny, this story of Jesus Christ, if you like analyze it a little bit more. You... They were super progressive. You can have energetical sex. It can be open. Doesn't have to be with your husband. Of course, I will take care of our kid, even if it's not mine. Recomposition of the family. I mean, yeah, let's go. 
But you know, very, very short, I was with the students talking about female gaze, male gaze, all these things, and then they brought up the Bechdel test. And then I was looking and I think the Bible, most of the Bible doesn't pass the Bechdel test. The other thing I find interesting with archetypes is that they are very recognizable. When I make art, I'm interested in the audience, like, understanding stuff. I mean, you can make very abstract art, but I would love that, like, my aunt can come see my show and get something out of it, and that the person who sees a lot of shows can also get something out of it. And I think archetypes just give people something to to hang on to and to relate to, and then it's somewhere you can go from to, to twist, to change, to open... So in that way, I find them interesting. But it's not that I want to stick to them or anything. All of them is a big thing. But when we were working, for example, with these three, like the young woman, the crown, the wild woman, the mother, the carer, I think, yeah, we have, I have characteristics of the three or of the four. And then it's interesting to take conscience of like, which one I go naturally for and which one I can maybe give a bit more space to. Lately in my life, I've been trying to give more space to the the carer or the mother to take more care of my friends, to be more conscious of their needs and stuff like that. You were saying about like the Mohammed prophet with the cougar, no? Yesterday, a friend I haven't seen in a while came into my place and was like, Julia, you're beautiful. You are getting older. And for him, the two statements went together. And I thought that was really nice to hear because with women, there is always this fear of getting older, no? Wow, like I can really look forward to being a milf or a cougar. So I was asking myself how to propose a woman figure that would be empowered, but that wouldn't just replicate domination schemes of patriarchy to make its place. My idea of the dangerous woman is a fighter, a resistor, but also a carer and a helper. I was writing about it and I say the dangerous woman because it's a figure and it comes also from a place that is personal, but the dangerous woman, it also doesn't exist alone. It needs to be dangerous woman, plural. And also even... Through my research now, I think like the dangerous woman was a milestone, but now I'm also more interested into the dangerous human or the dangerous being, rather. So I'm looking to expand this idea. Of course, there is some bodies like queer bodies or like racialized bodies who are labeled dangerous in pejorative ways, but I'm interested into like retaking the term. A little bit the ethical slut with slut, how they took like this insult to retake it and make it something to claim. I was intrigued and interested to see if I could do that with dangerous. And then through the research, somebody asked me, yeah, okay, dangerous, dangerous, but dangerous to who or to what? And that's also a bit the question you are asking, no? And this is also where Swivel Open came up from, so my latest uh, solo, which is now a duo with a naked pianist on stage, of course. And because, well, I like to be humble and take it small, I thought it should be dangerous to hegemonic structures of power, to keep it simple. So from this dangerous woman, I went to, to this dangerous being, and then I went to the question, okay, what bodies or what dances... Can we propose? Can we work on? Can we come up with that would be dangerous to hegemonic structures of power? A big part of this research also comes from Diego Agullo's Dangerous Dances. Uh, So I worked with him in Smash. It started with his practice of ballet which is a very violent but very fun practice somehow, where you are blindfolded in a studio and people throw tennis balls at you. Some people are nice, but Diego really, really throws the tennis ball at you and it brings you to a place of vulnerability, really, because you are blindfolded, you cannot do anything. If it hits your face or your solar plexus, it's like immediately goes into emotionality. And then his question was like, Basically, can you transform the hit into a dance, into an impulse for a dance? 
I thought this was a very interesting way to work with the hit. And then his other question was, what if our body becomes the projectile? We were in conversation when I started uh, working on this dangerous woman, and then this hegemonic structures of powers, he would also refer to as situations of domination or um, terrains where yeah, unequal power relationship happens. And he was like, how can we turn these situations into dance floors? And then how can we propose dangerous dances that move these relationships of power, make them tremble, make them dance, make them move? That infused a lot of this dangerous woman figure. One of the things that is at stake there is also like to always re-question the status quo, no? and always re-question what, always throw invitations to dance and what dance is needed and with who and who do you need to get into the dance and where do you need to turn the volume up. A situation where I was dangerous. I mean, it's a bit boring because it's quite conventional, but out of this research, I started also working on what I called bodies for the present times. It's for my next piece, and it's also a teaching practice that I have. And I open the questions to which bodies do we need for the present times? And my hypothesis is that on one side, we need bodies that are ready to resist, ready to fight, ready to run. If, I don't know, suddenly there is war in your country, like we saw in Ukraine, or if... Even if just I'm walking home alone at night and I need to be able to like either run or defend myself or react. So that's on one side. And on the other side, after two years of pandemic, I felt everyone was so disconnected, very near to depression, not knowing anymore how to connect to each other. And I felt more than ever, we need to train our sensual capacity to connect to each other. I was looking for a body that is at the intersection of this warrior body and sensual body. And how can they meet? So I developed this practice of soft wrestling, where I mix fake wrestling, because I'm not a real wrestling teacher, and a score I made that I call the stages of sensuality. And it gives something very beautiful. And I was also, with Frederike Heine, working on the idea of a soft defense. What would happen if somebody comes at you to, I don't know, attack you or very aggressively and instead of responding with aggression, you respond with softness, with gentleness and with opening. I work a lot with uh, Anne Dufourmentel's idea of gentleness. She has a book called The Power of Gentleness. I really recommend it if you want to bring niceness to your life. <laughs> And I had been practicing all weekend. I had been giving workshops all weekend. And then I was in Möbel Ulfe. There was two really aggressive guys at the door. It was about midnight and we were about to leave. But I saw that the bouncer was having like difficulty to keep them out. And then they made it in and then they were two. So she couldn't handle it alone. So usually in those situations, I would freeze, panic, not know what to do. And just kind of stay and not do anything. I think because I had been practicing all weekend, I felt extremely calm. I could just really observe the situation, understand when I needed to go in or not. So she took one guy out and with another guy, a guy and I took the second guy out. So we took him outside and he was very, very aggressive. And then he came back to spit on the bouncer. And then the bouncer lost her shit. So then we had to calm the bouncer down and told her it's not worth it. It's not worth it. What was impressive through all of this is that the softness was remaining in me. So I didn't get aggressive. I didn't get scared. And then the guy came back again from behind me. And then I turned around. I shoved him like 10 meters away. And I knew exactly where to go into his body, how to use my weight, how to put him away. I pushed him away, I don't know, like eight meters down the street, away from the situation. And then the thing was calming down. And Anya was there and she was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then the guy actually went to take a bottle of glass. And then people were like, go in, go in, go in, like very worried, like go in, we call the police. And then I just practiced this soft defense and I just stood my ground, looked at him with, I don't know if gentleness, but you know, just openly. He didn't have a grasp on me. His aggression was not getting anywhere. He threw the bottle from far. I stepped aside, the bottle broke on the floor. And then I looked at him again and then he just left. So that was a moment where I felt like, wow, yeah, 
all this bodily practice and all these exchanges about the subjects actually do something. because I want to give also the opposite. I was teaching to new students on Monday and Tuesday, and one of the students was really the soldier, we call him. And I was teaching wrestling, and he really wanted to do the example with me. And it was the first example, and I was like, this guy is gonna break my arm. I just lost, you know? I'm the teacher, I don't need, it's not about ego. I don't want to get my arm broken. I will just lose. Through the class, I worked with him on softness, and I was like, you need to learn to lose. You need to develop the softness. I want you to start from hugging rather than wrestling. And it was a complete opposite way to work. And I could see a difference in three hours. I could see a complete difference. So that was also really beautiful as a transformation to witness. Apathy is dangerous to dance. Apathy and, and disconnection from our bodies. For me, it happens a lot through actually social media and platforms and addiction to the screen. And I even notice it in myself because you become so numb to your senses when all your brain activity is occupied by screens and also addicted to them. Yeah, you really have to remind yourself to go outside and uh, enjoy the leaves of the fall, which is for me the first little step towards dancing, is these tiny everyday dances. That's dangerous. Other things that are dangerous are like a regime that oppresses people and where dancing is illegal, like in Iran, for example. I would say that's not necessarily my reality right now, although there is amazing solidarity in Berlin towards that right now, which I think is great. I saw a meme the other day, it was like, I really want to educate myself and stay updated on what is happening in the world, but I also want to have a nice day. Do you see my problem? I could really relate to that, but I think the demonstration that happened in Berlin with over 80,000 people, then it's also like a physical thing. And I was also reading this post from Missy Magazine that was like, does it make a difference uh, actually to people in Iran? And then they were explicitating how, how it does help in some ways. So I was thankful for that post. Do you think that the passion, I mean, maybe the passion and the love are not the same thing, but maybe the lover is the one you actually love. In German, it's very interesting because it's Liebhaber or Liebhaberin. So it's literally the person who has the love. Dufourmentel, she has another book called La Défense du Secret, Verteidigung des Geheimnisses. And in there, there is a chapter exactly about this duality opposition, no? That passion needs secret and love needs everyday certainty and like this kind of... To a certain extent, yes, but I like as always, to play between the lines, which is exactly where the love starts, that love needs to be vécu au grand jour, which means like revealed to the world, not hidden, in order for love to develop and exist. And the passion is, is hidden. That's what she proposes. As I say, I like to, to play between the lines, which is very tricky sometimes. When I first traveled to Spain, I thought, wow, everybody here is a lesbian. Because people were touching in the streets and touching their friends all the time. And then people were so open and warm to me. And I was like, 
they must be flirting with me. There is no other way because also as North American, you are not so open and warm and touchy with someone that you don't want something with. So it took me a while to understand the different cultural references. And even sometimes when I meet Spanish people in Berlin or in Germany, I still get confused and think they flirt with me. <laughs> When I was very young, I was a tomboy, totally a tomboy. My brother was eight years older and I just wanted to be just like him. I would shop in guy's section in stores and then people would tell my mom she had a very beautiful little boy. Uh, there was even a period where I would ask to be called Julian. And I was happy with that and I would play with the boys and everything. And then in school, when I was about nine, suddenly the boys realized I was not a boy. And then, you know, there's this whole social pressure. And then there's this whole, yeah, social pressure from school. So then I decided to become a girl again. In the summer break, I let my hair grow long. And I bought a t-shirt that had written in pink, like, girls are best. At around nine, I started to try to learn again the codes of femininity. And really, I had no clue. Like, I didn't know how to, to, you would tie your hair. To this day, I cannot really even do a proper braid. I did this. And then through high school, I was quite late with puberty and everything. So I didn't have my period for a long time. And I also didn't have breasts at all. When I was around 16, I remember that I wanted to get fake boobs. Because I thought... To be a woman, you need to have breasts. And so I should get breasts because I'm a woman and I wanted to get fake boobs. Can you imagine? Thank God my parents didn't let me. In university and through that, I eventually came out as a... But I'm like bisexual, pansexual. So it's also very confusing when it's not like one or the other. I also love women so much that looking back, I'm like, how could I not know? And I think it's because society tells you, yeah, if it's not so good with the man, it's normal, it's like this. Or, you know, it's just like the way society puts you. And often gay men, they know like really, really early on. And with women, it's much, much later for a lot of people. When I entered queer circles, there was this whole question. Now it's much more around gender pronouns and then non-binary and then trans and then all of these things and I was very confronted suddenly with my gender identity also going through this process of doing the piece Fala which is about the first time I wore a strap on dildo there was a lot of these questions that came up and also about not appropriating trans experience and how to speak from a personal point of view and not hurt any sensibilities of the community around it so I had to really do some introspections and I would be in these queer settings where like I was in an audition for Josep Caballero and we did a pronoun round uh, circle it was starting back in the days I noticed myself getting super stressed okay it's five people six people before me and then like I have five five no four people to decide my gender until it's my turn and then I need to state like what is my pronoun you know I was very confused about all this because I was, it's a queer space, I should feel safe, it should be fine. And some people really well articulated that some things that make some people feel safe might do the opposite for others. For a long time, I felt like, okay, I need to choose. I need to choose if I'm like she, they, he, I need to choose. Lately, I decided, actually, no, I don't need to choose. And I think choosing or Putting yourself into a box gives a sense of security, a sense of assertiveness. Staying in between the lines is a space that can be harder to hold, but it is a space I want to be in and I choose to be in. And I think queerness for me is something that is more interesting than trying to fit in one of the letters of the LGBTQ plus AA na 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 that allows me more navigation. So I don't need to choose and I don't need to choose what clothing codes I want to go by. If one day I want to be femme and the other day I want to be butch, I can stay more playful. And if I want to play with names or with pronouns, I can also do that. And I think 
it very often puts me in very vulnerable situations and I have to choose who I open with about which aspects of that. For now, I'm deciding that I don't need to choose and it's also a political refusal to categorize myself. Even though I'm like theoretically pansexual, for me, Monique Wittig's definition of lesbian as outside of gender, I think is something that speaks to me. I feel so lesbian. I'm like, yes, my gender identity is lesbian. Just gives me a way to step out of the whole uh, system. I was in the 8th of March, March, the protest, and there was someone with a sign that said, Feminismus is theory, lesbianismus is praxis. I'm theoretically pansexual, but I hate like these trends, and so I will say I'm lesbian, you know? This is what more my identity, and I don't know, it was bisexual, and then pansexual became super trendy, and then straight men wear nail polish, and then suddenly they are queer. And I think it's an interesting tension, because on one sense I'm like, yeah, the more people join the queer religion, the better, you know? I'm evangelical in this sense. At the same time, I was having this discussion last week and with a straight woman and she was, I don't recognize any of the codes of queerness. It's a privilege that I don't need to look for these codes. But she was like, can I be queer even if I date men? And it was a real question, like, can you be politically queer? Can you identify as queer even if you're in heterosexual relationships all the time? Fala, it's like the pronunciation of the L's in French, I guess, but because it's closer to fallo or fallus or phallic. So Fala came of this story of the first time I wore a strap on dildo that I mentioned a little bit before. So it first started as a solo and then I wanted to bring a musician with me on stage. I thought it would be really cool to work with a female electric guitar player because for me the guitar is the most phallic instrument, of course. It was really interesting to bring Pia in, first because I had to find a way to bring her into a story that was very personal and to see how we could share that together. What was also interesting to notice is that she had an immediate embodied relationship to her guitar. She is not a dancer or a performer per se, but she does performance a little bit, but she really went in physically into the explorations. I was really thankful for her for that because musicians sometimes the instruments they are worth like a lot of money like 5,000 euros this guitar or something and then they can be really scared to like break it or whatever but she really went physically into the explorations with the guitar and so in a way the dildo was my prosthesis the extension of my body and then the guitar was right away also the extension of her body and that brought very different physicalities in both of us because of course of the weight and the way you need to be bent to play the guitar and stuff like that. So it was my first time working with music and then the question was like how can we also make it interesting for her musically, conceptually. I mean I kind of hired her to play this rock and roll thing. No, I had this idea of rock and roll in my head. I was like let's queer the rock and roll, let's take this male ejaculation music and then let's put rhythms of female pleasure into it. So let's make it last longer, make it peak and then go down and then peak again and then go down and then peak again and then go down, you know? Pia arrived and I found out that she hated rock and roll. She hated all of this man solo masturbation thing. And it was like a trauma for her that this was associated to guitar. We had long conversations about it. Can it actually be different if it's her playing it? Can it actually be empowering? Does it actually change something? Or is it just the same male ejaculation again? These questions are still open, but I think in the piece we found a good... First of all, the first we opened the piece with a scene where the microphone is attached to the strap-on dildo, and then I move or the dildo moves me. It's a mix. Because it actually changes your center of gravity, it changes the way you move your hips. I also have heels at some point in the piece, and that also changes elements of balance and stuff like that. So sometimes I move the dildo or the dick, and sometimes it moves me, which I find interesting. 
and then sometimes it produces sound and sometimes the sound in returns also moves me. So we open the piece with this image where the dildo is mic'd and it's producing sound and then Pia is modulating the sound live. And this for us was an interesting way to open the piece that went like immediately away from all these Lacan, Freud, dildo, sex cliches that you are kind of a bit stuck in when you work on this subject because everyone will put what you do in relation to that. And it went immediately away from that and it treated this object as material and sound and a prosthesis that modifies the body and gave allowed us to really step away from these cliches for the opening scene and get an entrance into the topic that was much more sensorial. What are the feminine rhythms of pleasure? It came to me when I watched this piece from Antonia Livingstone and Simon Otterloni called Supernatural. And they have like a pink dance floor and then they chop wood and throw wood at each other, topless with jeans and heels and also work with string. At the time I didn't understand what was happening on stage, but it was this slow stretched out pace with some peaks and then like going back down to another slow stretched out pace and I was, was not really understanding but I just knew that by the end I was like I need to get out of here and go like fuck someone I don't know it was like so much tension the whole time for me it's these things that are more durational and that have various peaks and various intensity in the peaks and repetition sorry a lot of repetition also insisting on one thing Maybe moments of gentleness also, less, smaller notes, listening to the echo, leaving some silence, slowly. The end of the piece, I think, goes a bit in this direction. It slows down, but there's still some notes happening, and then we listen to the distortion, and our bodies are like softly meeting. In this piece, what will come, we started we working a lot with objects. As you say, you are like a neurotic person and you like to organize stuff. I think the first very visual input we could give on entropy was the organization of objects in the space. So we start with a very white and black monochrome space. We also both like to work a lot with absurdity and humor. And so through the piece, a lot of surprises happen. So some objects start to fall. Maybe the thing inside is round and it's a shape you cannot control and then it's colorful and color starts to appear. And the more we try to order the objects and the more we try to categorize the world, the more the accidents multiply and happen and the objects take over the world onto us. So we cannot control them anymore and they start to take control. And through the piece, we go through this transformation. So what is interesting about entropy is that it's this idea that everything in the world naturally tends towards chaos. But if you look at it on a molecular level, between the atoms and molecules, the level of energy or heat, how you want to call it, keeps rising. And then the molecules, they move more and more and more and more and more until they, the connections between them break. After this happens, they usually reorganize into new connections. So it's a bit like the Big Bang, okay? It goes up and up and up, and then there's the Big Bang, and then the universe is created, okay? So there's like new connections organizing. What we did in the piece is that with the musician Paulio Bandera, who works in the nightlife in Berlin as a DJ, and also with the lighting designer Nicolas Dubois, we looked like how can we make the energy in the space augment and augment and augment until this big bang point. And then how do we make this energy also rise up in our bodies? 
which meant like very physically to just dance and move a lot and get to create heat. And we brought in this techno music also to support us. And we, we start very slow and then the rhythm gets faster and faster and faster and faster until you cannot hold it anymore and faster. And then what happened through the piece is that we reached this level where we cannot maintain it anymore. There's a cyclo at the back and I'm like shaking the cyclo and the whole room is shaking. And uh, Sebastian is doing stuff with some ropes and we're both full on and the lighting is changing like in the club and the music is on and everything is like full to the maximum capacity that we could reach at least in that moment there is this moment of transformation and then both our bodies I go through a sort of tunnel of tepish of this floor and I get born again and then there is this re-equilibration happening in the piece and we enter a new world let's say it like this and in this new world there is more color there is more curves we are also both naked so there is more attention to touch we never touch in the piece but at the end we are slowly becoming objects and we are also slowly tending towards each other so there is this tension between the human and non-human also happening L'Apologie du Prince Charmant was the first collaboration piece between Sébastien Provencher and I. He also came out as gay like when he was around 25 or maybe even later. And we were both wondering why were we straight for so long? <laughs> we realized we both grew up with Disney and maybe Disney were like our highest romantic ideal. They were our romantic education in a way. And then we realized that his favorite movie was The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid is the gay narrative, no? Like she has this tail and she wants feet, but she can't really be who she is. And if she goes to the other world, maybe she can be who she really want to be. La la la. And my favorite movie was The Lion King. Because I could never identify to the princesses. And if you are not the princess, then who are you? Because in the movies, also the Prince Charming usually doesn't have a very detailed role. He's just a total archetype. Is the beautiful la la la. Sometimes he almost doesn't even speak. I guess the movie I could identify myself to was The Lion King. I could be a lion. <laughs> when I was a kid, I remember practicing to run like The Lion King when he runs in the desert and then to be able to run on all fours. So we both wanted to work with that. We also both really like to work with humor. So it was all about deconstructing these prince and princesses and jumping from one to the other with the princess to show and highlight how much of a stereotype it is, how sexualized she is, how the mirror, the dress, the... She's also portrayed as this object or this ideal. And so we wanted to deconstruct the things around that. At the same time, it was in one of my first pieces, so we didn't have any budget. And places where I work, like residency places, always influence a lot what comes out. So we were working in this studio that is in Montreal on the Plaza Saint-Hubert. And the Plaza Saint-Hubert has all these really cheap shops, cheap old wedding dresses place. So we bought the same dress for Sebastian and I, like this ugly princess dress, pink and blue. So I had a pink one and he had a blue one. And then there was the dollar store. So all of our stage design comes from the dollar store. And in the dollar store you go and there's like a full row of only pink things for girls and a full row of only blue things for boys. So everything in our stage design was pink and blue up to our knee pads and our underwear. And we just really stressed the cliche and the stereotype and also the cheapness of it and the consuming aspect of it. And we used Disney soundtrack and we just really had a lot of fun. <laughs> We gave each other the opportunity to finally live this romantic dream with one another. And then we actually did it reverse. So I was his prince and he was my princess. And we could culminate in this moment of living this romantic dream. And then we finish, we take everything off. And there's like a very short moment of nudity where symbolically we say, okay, we've done it and now we can let it go.
Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel. Conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Caesar. Music, S. McAvoy. Research team, Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright, Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2023.